beautiful people. It's Monday. It is Monday. It is Monday. Monday. Welcome to Love Babs, Love Talk on Babs Rolls Ivy. It's Monday. Huh. Uh, before I get to the shooting in Jacksonville, Florida, before I get to, you know, Black people are being hunted story, uh, let me tell you how my weekend went. It's a great weekend. It's a good weekend. Always a good weekend, though. I, do I have a bad weekend? Never. So let me see. It started off, I guess I always, I always go, let me start from Thursday. So I went to the Artist Corps gathering at um, Art Space because, uh, you know, we granted some artists opportunity to create their art, give them some money to create their art, and then share with the community. So uh, that was really nice at the Art Space uh, Sandbox. Uh, it's facilitated by Frank Brady and uh, Ife Michelle Gardine. And it was wonderful to sit with these young people. Well, artists, these artists of all hues and all mediums. Um, and to hear about uh, what the stuff that they're working on. And uh, it was a privilege and an honor to sit there. And, 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 you know, honestly, some of these folks are carrying a heavy weight on the artistry that they want to create. And it's not lost on me that uh, people are in various stages of distress, unrest, and challenges. And they find ways to create art in the midst of all of that on an everyday level, you know, on an everyday practical level. They find opportunities to uh, create art in the midst of great chaos, distress. Um, not all of them. Well, the challenges range and, and, and vary. Uh, but it's not lost on me that artists are called to create under any condition in every condition. So that was Thursday. Friday, I went to uh I went to Serafina and Desmond's wedding. And Serafina is our great love. And now Desmond is our great love. And they had a they had a wonderful, wonderful wedding at uh, La Bella Vista in Waterbury, which I've never been to that venue. You could tell it's a very old, not very old, but it's a it's it's an older venue than some of the other places that I've gone to for banquets and weddings and gatherings and all that. So I've never been to this one. Um, so it was lovely. And the food was off the chain. Oh, my God. Uh, the cocktail hours should have been the dinner hour because it was. And, and yes, there were things that I could eat. You know, I think I've gained weight. I'm not supposed to be gaining weight, but I've gained some weight because I just ate my way through this weekend like a crazy person. Well, not like a crazy person, like like normal people do who don't have a weight problem. <laughs> Make it any sense. <laughs> anyway, so we went to that wedding. It was great. It, rain, it was raining and it stopped long enough to dry the outside seating and to uh, get through the vials and then get to cocktail hour then it started raining again. But it was such a good time. Met some, met some amazing people. Uh, uh, Desmond is Nigerian, so it was this whole vibe. I mean, it was the continent in Waterbury. I'm telling you, uh, it was just beautiful to see. And and Serafina was the most beautiful bride. And uh, Reverend Orsella Hughes was the uh, was the minister who uh, officiated the wedding. You know, Ars Arcella is tall as all get out, 
and she wears high heels. <laughs> she's tall and she wears high heels. Uh, so she's striking. You know, she comes down that aisle with the high heels on. And uh, it was just wonderful to see her. So it was a wonderful, wonderful, it was a beautiful night for a wedding. And if that wasn't enough, we left the wedding at about, I don't know, 10, 10 o'clock. And we ran over to Cafe Nine for late night jazz hosted by Ryan, the young Ryan Sands, drummer extraordinaire, prodigy, uh, and a gathering of musicians of exceptional talent. Uh, and then, so we were there till about one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> late night, late night jazz is a real thing. I like my jazz at late night. Uh, I just wish I hadn't ate, eaten so much at uh, at the wedding because I was full, and I damn sure I did have a couple of beers while I was sitting there at the bar uh, at late night jazz at Cafe Nine. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was it, though. I had, like, two beers. That was more than enough because I had I was drinking already at the other thing. Not a lot, not a lot, because I can't really drink that much anymore. So Zempic will make you not want to drink. So, you know, so, yeah. So that was fine. But it was the music was pumping. I saw Nick DiMaria. Uh, Alexis was there tap dancing. She was amazing, and her feet were on fire. And she lended herself beautifully to the to the venue. So, so there's new owners of Cafe Nine, and and you could tell because it, it 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 doesn't have the same neatness. And they're probably gonna be mad at me for saying this, but I'm gonna still go there because I love Cafe Nine. It don't it doesn't have the same neatness and attention as the other owner. So I don't know what that's about. Maybe they have a short stay. I don't know. But I felt like the other guy that, who actually owned Cafe Nine, who owned it before these, before he sold it to these cats, he had a, he had a standard of neatness about the space. Even though it was considered a dive bar, it did it wasn't it didn't feel gritty, you know. And I liked that. I liked that it was a it was a it was a dive bar, but it was sophisticated dive bar. Now it just feels gritty, and I just want to go in there and wipe stuff down. Like I want to clean. <laughs> I just want to clean it. So I don't know. Maybe that'll, I don't, maybe I have to go again and see what it's like. Maybe it was because it was late night and it was just late night. And I'm going to attribute it to late night because, you know, they've been open since like seven, eight o'clock. You know, they've been open. So they had a set, Nick, I mean, they had an opening set. So, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so I'm attributed to that. So let me just say, I'm going to go back. Check it out again. But they got a menu, so they got hot dogs. You know, I've been loving these hot dogs lately. You know, hot dogs are bad for you, but that's all right. <laughs> lots, lots of things are bad for you. So so that was Saturday night. And then I ended up sleeping in Saturday morning, Sunday morning, because I was wore out from Saturday night. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me back up. Let me back, back, back up. Me back all the way up. Me back up. So yes, I went to the wedding on Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday. Me, I skipped over Saturday and went right to Sunday. Saturday, uh, I was at. Uh, I went to Sixth Dimension Afrofuturism. 
uh, exhibit over at uh, the lab at Concord done by Juanita Sunday and company. Uh, and let me tell you something. It was phenomenal. I mean, it was just, if you wasn't, if you haven't, if you don't make your way to the six dimension exhibit, you might as well just say you are a one dimensional soul. Because let me tell you something, it is stunning, all this artwork. And the space is so cool for it, right? Like it's it's what the it's what the armory it's what the armory it's what people wanted the armory to be when they were doing open space, you know. Except you're not taking your life in your own hands when you walk through the space like you do the armory. Because <laughs> you know when they were doing open studios at the armory, you had to like that stuff roped off. You had to walk over planks and all this other kind of stuff. Had to worry about falling bricks. I mean, it's just a whole lot of. A whole lot of danger included in an exhibition that didn't have danger in its exhibition. So anyway, the 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 lab at Concorp is is uh you know over there on uh, Newhall Street. Uh, and it's a new space that Concorp people took took over and renovated, and it's stunning. But the third floor isn't renovated; it's just raw space with classrooms. So uh so anyway. Uh, Juanita tricked it out, made it into the sixth dimension. And you really feel like when you get off the elevator uh, and you walk through the portal, you're like, okay, I'm here. <laughs> it was amazing. And, and it was so many people. It was great. It was great to see all the people. And so we got there, we ran out, left there, uh, and went over to uh, Broken Umbrella, uh, the Regicide's performance for, for BWAG. And man, they were in best form, best, best form, best form. Uh, they were so good, like Ian and Ruben and Ryan and all. The, I mean, you know, all the folks. I don't know all their names because uh, you know I went to practice with them on Thursday, which I knew I was gonna. I can't be in this show until I has a lot of time practicing. I need like lots, <laughs> but I don't care. I just like being around it. I don't care if I never get to work with, uh, be on actual stage with them. I don't care. I, I really don't. Because I, I just like being around them because they just are funny. And I I want to be that funny. So so they did so they did some of the routines that I know. Like they ran through with like the, the, the alphabet game, which I find that quite challenging. And then and then the game where they're like, if I were uh, if you were to have sex with me, and then and then the 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 topic is whatever. <laughs> I think it I think it was automobile. <laughs> I think it was car. <laughs> and it was so and so so what happens is so the the topic is that you know they come out and they say this is the game just give us a a a, a object of some sort somebody said car or some old thing. And so they each take a turn and they go sex with me is like and then whatever a car, or a car would be like, you know, you know, stick shit, some old thing, like blah, blah, blah. It's funny. I'm not that funny yet, but I'm getting there to be funny. So I imagine if it was me, I would say, uh, having sex with me is like, like having a Cadillac built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> now that, that's my one little thing. <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else would think it's funny. <laughs> but I 
Come for comfort, not for speed. If you, if sex, sex with me is like riding in a Cadillac. Built for comfort, not for speed. There you go. But uh, boom, boom. So anyway, so BWAC was there. It was a fundraiser for BWAC. And I, this is what I'm going to say on air. I don't think any of their performances, the the regicides under the under the an umbrella theater has been that black. They had more black people there than they had white people. <laughs> and it was a it was a beautiful thing to see. And and what and black people were laughing. You know, I, I don't know if all the black people got all the all the funny, but they got most of it, 99% of it. And it was funny. And BWAC was laughing. So I got to talk to him a little bit, took some pictures with him. He was good. He was, and he was, he had his wheelchair and he stood up, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and his wife, they had food. I had some deviled eggs. Now, listen, I, you know, I'm on Ozempic. So, so no matter what I eat, I'm, I'm going to feel like I had a, a Thanksgiving meal. No matter what you eat, you just going to feel full. So I had, I had some meatballs at, uh, at the Sixth Dimension. I had three meatballs. I could only eat two. It's like, okay, that was cool. And then I had a cocktail. I had a, they had a, they had a cocktail. Somebody had mixed some cocktails, which was really nice. And they were really great cocktails. So I was like, all right, cocktail. Uh, and then I get over to, uh, to the, to the regicides and smokestack for the improv fundraiser. And, and you know how black people do. I mean, you just can't outdo us. You just cannot outdo black people. So, you know, we, we just show up with food. And then Pizzo Pete is on the ones and twos, which which added a really nice, like, that's a good place to have a damn good party. If if they ever wanted to raise some money, the Retrocides and the Broken Umbrella Theater, just open the space up for a block party, for a party, a dance party, get a DJ, put some food out, and maybe do 20 minutes of your, your set so that y'all can enjoy the party too. And, uh, but it was fun. Uh, it was lots of beer. T-shirts were sold. I bought a T-shirt. Uh, it was good. I had a good time. It was a really good time. Uh, and I'm so glad that they raised some money. When I when I checked before, uh, Saturday, they were up to $7,000. The goal was $9,000. So they were up to a little more than $7,000. And uh, I bought a T-shirt, but I'm gonna go back and make another donation, like a real donation. You know, because the T-shirt was like $10. So I'm going to go and make an, another contribution so that I could add to it. Um, because it was just a wonderful night. The weather was perfect. Uh, and it was funny. Uh, I met Lucy's parents, Lucy Gelman's parents. Uh, they're cute. They look, She looked just like them. Um, uh, so it was really charming to see them. Uh, Edwin, artist Edwin was there. And uh, with that long hair of his, and he's so tall. It's like, oh my god! You know, he's a steel artist. You know, um, and uh, I got a chance to chat with him a little bit, and uh, so it was nice to see artists out and supporting, uh, supporting, supporting the improv fundraiser. It was really good. There was a lot of artists out last night. I mean, Saturday night. So it was good. I had a good time, and uh, and it was it was funny. They were they were in good good form. They're always in good form, but it was just extraordinarily good form and just extraordinarily funny. So I enjoyed that very much. So Sunday, uh, so Saturday night, we finished that up. And I, then we were just like, I was just like wore out. Saturday night, went home, got up Sunday, made our way 
So the uh, uh, Mohegan Sun for WNBA was the uh, Connecticut Sun versus the uh, LA Sparks. And uh, Connecticut Sun won. Uh, we were there with uh, Ruby Melton and uh, Gail McAvey, uh, her wife, uh, Ruby's wife, Gail. And that was a good time. Good. To, I had my first and only $75 high roller margarita at uh, Soltoro, which is owned by Michael Jordan. I was like, Michael Jordan's got three restaurants at Mohegan Sun. I didn't, I, I put two and two together when the $75 margarita was like, and it has Michael Jordan's high end tequila. I was like, why do they have his tequila in this restaurant? And then, and then they pointed out, Get it, the bull, the bull, the, it's the Chicago bull, bear, bear. I mean, a Chicago bull, bull, you know, red bull and uh, soul, sun with the, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole play on stuff. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a vibe. It's a real vibe. And the food was really good. It's uh, Mexican, you know, or, or take on Mexican. So it was good. You know, they, you know, the kind of place where. They make your guacamole table side. It was so good too, man. So so it was good. I had some. I had a filet mignon done up Mexican style. It was good. Um, it was a good time. So we ate, we drank, we talked, we laughed. You know, we just was having a good good time. The game was exciting. It was thrilling from beginning to end. You know, I mean, there's a lot going on at these games. It's amazing that these players could concentrate on playing basketball with all the hoopla going on, the music, the loudness, mascots, dancers, little kid dancers, um, um, T-shirt throwing. Oh, my God, it's like a circus within a circus within a circus. Uh, and then lights and, oh, it is dizzying. And and yet they managed to play professional world class basketball <laughs> in the middle of it. That's like, oh my God. You know, and this this is my second WNBA game. Well, I mean, I love it. It listen, it's a vibe. And you know, I got to thinking, how many opportunities can families go spend time together, you know, watching professional sports? And I don't think it's terribly expensive to do it, particularly I don't women women's basketball hasn't uh, it's not on par with men's basketball in terms of pricing, I don't think. So, because there's a lot of kids, a lot of families with kids. And it was a pretty full house, so, but it was good. It was a, and we had great seats. We were sitting right behind it, right behind the Connecticut Sun. Like, we were right behind it. Like, I could have coached from where I was. <laughs> I, I literally could have coached that game from the seats because I felt like I was right there with them. I was. So, uh, so it was good. So, and then we went to, we, you know, we had dinner. We went up to the lounge on the 33rd floor and had a cocktail. We had a champagne cocktail. Then we took the elevator back down, went to Sol Toro and I uh, had dinner and drinks. And, you know, I had some partida uh, tequila, which is really good. Um, it was just, we just had a wonderful, it was just very chill. To hang with Ruby and uh, and Gail, and then and then we got out of there before it got dark. You know, we 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 got on the road, and then as soon as we got like into New Haven proper, then it was starting to get dark. Cause I didn't want to be on those roads coming back late dark. So and that that's that that's the weekend. That's the weekend, baby. It was good. It was good. I mean, what weekend is not good? 
you know, it was a good weekend. Next weekend is what? This weekend coming is uh, Labor Day weekend, right? I tell you, summer just, it just flew by. It just flew by. So next weekend is Labor Day weekend. So Labor Day is Monday, the 4th. So, you know, we won't be on air. So don't look for us. Uh, but Monday on the on the 5th, which is my, my good friend and my great love, Bet Allen's birthday. Uh, she'll be, I don't know how old she'll be. I think she's 10 years older than I am. Uh, but anyway, her birthday is uh, Monday all day. But she'll be here. She'll be here next week or something or other because I, I think I'm, I'm gonna see her. Oh, let me let me pay attention. Attention <laughs> to when she's gonna be here because I, I think I'm scheduled to go. See her. Yikes! I don't even know. Maybe it's, maybe she'll be here this week. Is it this week? Oh, let me see. Oh, yeah, she'll be here Thursday. I'm having dinner with them on Thursday, 6 o'clock at uh, Madison. Okay. All right. That's all right. Okay. And then uh, uh, today I've got uh, I've got one of the Lit Fest authors coming on. Because, you know, Lit Fest is all about the romance writing. Uh, they are partnered with Yale this year. And uh, Yale is doing a romance conference, and Lit Fest is part of that vibe. And uh, so I'm excited about that. It's going to be good. It's going to be really, really good. So anyway, I've got uh, at ten fifteen, I've got uh, Dr. Nicole Jackson coming on. She's a she's a, she writes under the name Katrina Jackson, and uh, and she's a romance writer and erotica writer. So she'll be on at 10.15 this morning. So this week, uh, I got a bunch of the uh, LiveFest authors on. And Ife comes on Wednesday, uh, I believe, with uh, with my star, Beverly Jenkins, who y'all know is, like, big time. So she'll be on. And uh, they'll be talking about the theme of this year's LiveFest, liter literature of hope, and uh, all the kinds of stuff. So so I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's LiveFest. I tell you, these this time is flying by. Wednesday, you know, the Fred Hampton uh, celebrate, birthday celebration. Fred Hampton would have been 75 years old on Wednesday. So anyway, uh, keeping with the Black Panther tradition of uh, breakfast, we're doing breakfast at 5 in the afternoon. So come through, eat, have some breakfast. <laughs> and celebrate Fred Hampton. Oh, so I've got, I've, got, I've got a week ahead of me. This is going to be a week, a week, a week. And then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, I got all kinds of stuff going on. So, so yeah. So now that I got all my weekend out the way, because I know if you don't follow me on social media, you have no idea uh, what I'm doing. It's like it's like when my neighbor sees me sitting on the porch. I mean, last summer he saw me sitting on the porch. And he was like, "Don't you ever want to go out?" <laughs> uh -huh. He literally said that. He's like, you sit on this porch. Do you ever want to go out sometimes? And everybody was just like quiet. It just all got silent. Like, mm. no, we like sitting on the porch. <laughs> Do I ever want to go out? Baby. <laughs> clearly, clearly you don't even know my life. <laughs> 
you don't know my life because you making statements that are and that you know what and that's interesting because that's just somebody's opinion from where they see you that from where they see me that's a vantage point where they see me you know they have a limited view and uh and it was amusing to me because i i'm out all the time <laughs> But when he sees me, he only sees me on the porch with a bottle of wine and a book and friends. So he doesn't see, you know, he doesn't follow me on social media or any of that stuff. So he has no way of knowing that I'm Batman. <laughs> he, has, he has no way of knowing that. <laughs> I'm Batman. <laughs> so... So I, you know, I, whatever, but, but that speaks to people just not knowing your life and just seeing what they see from where they stand and, uh, and just imagining that that applies across, across the, the, your life and, and it doesn't. So anyway, I'll leave it right there. I'll leave it right there. Oh, the LSAT is coming up. I'm taking the September 8th, which is a Friday instead of a Saturday. Cause I want to. Enjoy Lit Fest without all that on my brain. Because LSAT is exhausting, and I don't want to jump into a Saturday exhaust. So I'm going to take it Friday. So I'm not going to do my show September 8th. I'm going to do uh, I'm gonna do LSAT. And, you know, it's like a four-hour test. <laughs> I'll be ready. I've not been studying as well as I should, I guess. I don't even know if I should say should. I, I think I, I just, I'm suffering from... LSAT fatigue, deeply LSAT fatigue. I just, I'm just tired of it. Um, but it, this is one last hurdle, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get through it, and that'll be fine. But gosh, I'm tired of it. There's other aspects of this thing I got to work on, and uh, I got to get in gear. So I got to start working on that uh, now. You know, I mean, everything has been worked on, but there's just things you got to like sew up loose ends and tackle things and so so I'll get to that one way or the other. So so that's that's one part. Uh now let me let me let me just get get to uh, to the seriousness. So apparently there was a shooting over the weekend, a white man, 20 years old or 21 years old, however the hell he is. Uh Uh, walked into a family dollar and killed three black people. Just walked in there and shot them. He was on, he was on a he was on an HBCU campus. Uh, I, I guess a few days ago, uh, and the security, you know, heads up, you know, and uh, I I can't I can't begin to imagine what kind of damage he would have done if the security wasn't so tight on that historically black college in Jacksonville. But family dollar is a different animal. And you know, uh, he kills three black people and then kills himself. In Florida, of all places, you know, with the with that dumbass governor that they have, you know, who's so busy trying to <laughs> white splain woke that, you know, and yeah, I know he's enjoying a little bit of a bump in the Republican polls from that pageant, that tired pageant that they put on, masquerading as a debate, um, you know, and his 
you know, he just sounds like Kermit the Frog without any real uh, intelligence. That's why I can't abide his voice. Uh, but he's a he's a dummy. He's just a dummy, and I don't. I can't make no apologies about that. Uh, I don't know another intellectual way to sort of say that. So anyway, uh, this goes down in Florida. You know, after after he's fanned the flames of, you know, black hatred and everything, you know, I'm going to strip black people of every poss possible existence in the Florida. And I want to do that across the country, DeSantis. <laughs> so this little white boy with his swastika painted guns and manifesto and all this other kind of stuff. And he had a real hatred. And they, and they actually call this a hate crime. Because, you know, you can just kill black people and not hate them, I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, if you're a white person, you could just kill black people and not hate them. So it's not a hate crime. It's just a regular crime of murder. But you're not murdering them because they're black. Or you might be murdering them because they're black, but you're murdering them because you hate them. You know, just because they're black and you murder them doesn't necessarily mean you hate them. Just means you're murdering them because they're black. Ain't that some ish? I'm just, I'm just, uh, that's how I'm, when they say things are not a hate crime against people of color by white people, I think that's what they mean. That, well, you're, they killed you because you're black, but they didn't hate you. <laughs> I, that's how it, so, but in order for it to be a hate crime, it's not necessarily because you're black. It's because, you know, they, they just committed a crime. But this is clearly a hate crime because I think he spelled out, I hate black people or I hate niggas, whatever it was. I think it's just, I hate niggas. And everybody knows niggas is cold for black people. That's what that is. So... So so they could so he could so they could clearly say it's a hate crime. I don't know I don't know what it means at this point. Uh he turned the gun on himself. I just feel like if you you that bad, you want to kill people, then own that. Own it and then don't kill yourself. Take take the punishment. And then tell people I hate these black people and I killed them. <laughs> and here's the thing. He had he had he had he was held on mental health stuff in the past, and he was still able to buy a gun. See, because these crazy white Republicans don't care. They want you to have guns. They want all the, they want anybody and everybody to have a gun. Now they don't they don't want you to have health care. And they don't want you to have agency over your body. And they don't they don't want you to have food at your house. And they don't want you to have a living wage. But damn all that, you can have a gun. <laughs> you my friend can have a gun now you can't have ac access to nothing else we're not gonna help you get no insurance to go talk to somebody about what is bothering you hell no go get a gun that my friend is the solving of the problem let's put a cold piece of steel in your hands while you are under emotional duress. See what happens. <laughs> you have the right. 
Makes me want to holler the way they do my life. Uh, dear white people, stop killing us. Just stop killing us. That's all. I mean, we'll have the conversation with black people about killing black people. We'll do, we'll we'll handle that. We'll we'll we we working on that. But we need y'all to stop killing us because y'all kill us at greater rates. You know, mass mass killings, mass mass killings. So I, I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't know what to. This is America. This is what we do. That's why I feel so strongly about visiting other places in the world and, and trying to find a modicum of peace and safety that, you know, we just don't feel here. And, you know, the more, and I, and I, uh, the more that we learn about history and, and the, the, the ways that white folks have just been from the very beginning with people of color, I, I could imagine why they wouldn't want to rehash that or just remember it or just because there's things that they don't know they only they only want to keep you from the stuff that they know the stuff that they don't know that we all don't know some of that stuff i mean all of it is just so unspeakable and unconscionable that uh i i would imagine i it's hard for me to say damn white people y'all did that really like you did that uh, and every time I come across some some black history, I, and there's a lot of it out there that's out there, I'm I'm stunned at the level of inhumanity, just the the level, you know. They and and this is this is leveled 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 at white people, you know. And I think if white people could come to grips with their with their murderous selves. You know, if they could, the murderous history, you know, that that would go a long way to begin to have America live up to her ideals. Because as long as that lingers and hangs in the ether as uh, unspoken trauma and not dealt with, then you, you, you're destined to repeat. Not necessarily repeat, but revisit the same sort of attitudes that put things like Jim Crow in place, uh, things like uh, 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 slave catching laws in place again, you know. Uh, loitering laws were invented to curtail the movement of Black people. It was, they were created to curtail the movement of black people. The law, Jim Crow law says, loitering law said, if three black people were gathered, that was against the law. So you had to either be going to work or coming from work. You couldn't stop in between. There was a law that black people couldn't own Cadillacs. Black people couldn't own fancy cars. And if they own fancy cars, guess what they had to do? 
They had to keep chauffeur uniforms and chauffeur caps in the car so that if they got pulled over in a nice ass car, they could say, uh, this is my 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 boss's car. Boss being their white boss's car because they are the chauffeur. Did you know that? It's incredible to me. Unbelievable. But not. <laughs> But not. I don't. I don't know. We we gotta. I, I I let's let me tell you something. I'm I'm hard pressed to be in a room with white folks now, because because the level of anger that they are willing to uh, show up with guns is scary to me. I, I I don't know. Should I be? Should I be worried about being in spaces with white people now? Should I have always been? And I can hear some of you like, oh, no, man. Uh, I, I, seriously. <laughs> White men are angry. They've been angry for a long time. The sense of entitlement to a better life that they neither earn nor work for is crazy. We'll see what happens. I, I, see, I see the former president got a mugshot. And now all these Republicans running around talking about, oh, the criminal justice system. <laughs> it's unfair. It's unjust. <laughs> really? <laughs> ah. Ah. 91 counts. I dare say. Oh, who, who would they... Who would they who would they give a second chance to under those same conditions if not white Trump? Because there are brothers and sisters with less, way less, who can't catch a break. And you are willing to give this cat another opportunity to uh fleece you? I, I don't know what to make of it. I, I really, and I, and I, listen, you know, months ago I was offering advice to the Republican Party on how to fix this. Now I'm just going to buy a bag of popcorn and watch. Because I, they're not interested in fixing this. That You know, these are the people, if they were on the Titanic, they would just run to the sinking in and just be like, all right. <laughs> It's gonna, it's gonna run to the sinking in, you know. They are, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of them. None of them would denounce Trump, and then going after the little Indian guy who's crazy, <laughs> who's just, who's just equally stupid. I mean, he might be smart as an entrepreneur and an economist and whatever the hell he is, but he's stupid politically and stupid historically, St stupid in. In understanding history, you know, he's just not well educated, and he just says stuff. I mean, there's just so many things that he said was just out out lies, or he just ignorant and just willfully ignorant and deliberately stupid. I pick whatever. That's what it is, and I, and I I don't I don't know what to make of that. And people are like, oh, I still vote for Trump. Why? You you wouldn't even vote. You wouldn't even. 
let a supermarket hire somebody with a damn, uh, with a felon, uh, one count of something. You wouldn't even let somebody work in a grocery store or Home Depot or one of these little places with less, way, way less. And here you are, you want to give the keys to the United States to this guy again? Y'all are on some kind of, I, I don't know what it is. You know. So, it's just, uh, it's just wild. Wild, wild, wild. And and uh, scary at the same time. Frightening and scary at the same time. And uh, I don't know what to make of it right now. It's, uh, uh, I'm not afraid. I, I am exhausted. And I dare say a lot of black people are. And and I and I I'm a, I'm gonna tell you, white folks, I am gonna think twice uh, about going into spaces where y'all at. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you what, like I tell you, I'm just gonna, cause I don't know who's gonna show up and start shooting. I don't worry about being in the hood, but y'all, you know. Yeah, anyway, that's the way of the world. I don't know what else to tell you. Let me see what's going on in other news. Uh, I know there's stuff going on. Uh, oh, yeah, that, that storm over there uh, in the Southern California. Whew, that was crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, I, I I saw glimpses of this particular story and I wasn't sure. So your boarding pass and wait, please. Why airlines are asking passengers to step on the scales. What does that even mean? So starting, I guess, to today, starting today, passengers flying on Korean air may be asked to step on a scale before boarding their flight. Now, I, Koreans are small people, majority of them. You know, this is a small percentage that are overweight, obese. But the majority of them, I would imagine, are small people. The exercise, which will last about three weeks, is required by law and applies to all Korean flag carriers, a Korean air representative told CNBC. The law requires airlines to weigh passengers and their carry-on luggage at least every five years and is crucial for safety of flight operations. So this announcement was met with backlash from the public. I would imagine it would. So anyway, a notice detailing the exercise set to begin at Gimpo International Airport today, uh, followed by a uh, Incheon Airport next month has been removed from the airline's website due to sufficient notice and media coverage. <laughs> Is it reasonable to weigh passengers? Well, definitely not, said Vance Hilderman, CEO of the aviation safety company, uh, Effusion. 
at least not for the purposes of safety, he said. If you're at a small bombardier, a small Embraer jet, and we had 10 very obese people, it could make a small difference, he said, on commercial aircrafts. Anything from a 737 and above, you know, 120 people, we have it built in. Aviation software can adjust for weight changes, air density, and other factors, which is why safety isn't compromised, even in situations where passenger makeup is atypical, such as an early morning flight of mostly businessmen who tend to weigh more than the average traveler, he said. <laughs> Overall, a significant weight increase per passenger would be eclipsed by the weight of fuel cargo and the aircraft itself said Hilderman. Fuel is 20 times more than the passenger weight, he said. But Shem Malmquist, an instructor at Florida Tech's College of Aeronautics, I wouldn't trust a damn thing that came out of Florida, any school, any school, said random weight samples are a good idea. See, he's stupid too. I'm not listening to anybody coming out of Florida any kind of school, higher education, I'm not taking your word for a damn thing unless it's an HBCU. And that's my that's my personal cutoff. So we use average weights of passengers, but people are getting a lot heavier, he said. 300 people that weigh more than average can put an airplane significantly overweight. And all our performance calculations, runway length, climb, obstacle clearance, landing distances, altitude capabilities are dependent on weight, among other things. And Hildeman agrees that people are getting bigger, but he said passengers now differ in other ways, too. Americans are getting heavier. So are Chinese. So are Koreans, he said. But we're also flying younger. So it's actually offset the average human's weight increase. So a study published in 2019 in the Journal of Transport and Health found that regions with higher obesity prevalence may begin to see significant compromised safety margins if increasing weight weight trends continue. Jose Silva, an associate professor at Australia's RMIT University School of Engineering, and one of the study's authors told CNBC that he thinks airlines are reluctant to weigh passengers because of the sensitive nature of the topic. And there is also a lack of understanding of the safety gains, which could be obtained if there were more accurate means to ascertain the passenger's weight instead of relying on standards. So uh, a whistleblower complaint filed in 2021 alleges that the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has failed to recognize safety issues caused by relying on average passenger or baggage weights that no longer reflect the U.S. population. Okay, so... Air New Zealand weighing passengers for June for this reason. Finnair did the same thing in 2017. Hawaiian Air has conducted multiple passenger weight exercises between Honolulu and America Samoa. It's now defunct. Uh, uh, Samoa Air used to charge passengers by their weight. That's that's where we going with this. That right there. That's it charging overweight passengers. And flyers in the United States likely won't be weighed, said Hilderman, even though an FAA advisory circular published in 2019 stated that airlines can weigh passengers. Well, let the GOP get wind of this, and they'll damn sure make a way to figure out a way to shame and penalize fat people. That's where we're going with that. Uh, so it's a different story in Europe where carriers follow European Union aviation safety 
Agency Regulations, the EASA. And so the ESA weighed nearly 23,000 passengers in 09 and 08 and 09 and found the average weight had increased by uh, 6.6 to 11 pounds. A subsequent report published in 2022 found that mean passenger weight increased slightly uh, since 09 for an average of like 181 pounds for men and 149 pounds for women. So I don't think we heard the end of the story. So it's a hot, it's a hot button topic. I know. And, and I, and I guarantee you it's going to catch some traction. So fat people deserve to travel for pleasure, just like everyone else. And we also need to remember that air travel is for work, for family obligations and for other responsibilities too. So our taxes help support this industry and deserve to be accommodated safely and comfortably with access to accessible seating at all price levels. Tigers Osborne, the executive director of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, told that to in CNBC. So, but it was, I don't think we heard the last of this. It's starting to get, this is the second story I've seen about this. So, uh, uh, it's a... It's, uh, they're gonna start charging for this. I I know it. I know it's gonna be some. If you if you're if you are if you, they're gonna find some guidelines about weight and BMI and all this other kind of stuff. They're gonna put you on them ridiculous scales. And if you're over for whatever they imagine you should be, that's like you know fifty dollars or a hundred dollars to your ticket or whatever. I'll be back with Katrina Jackson uh, for Lit Fest. Elm City Lit Fest, Romance Writers. I'll be back in about uh, 15 minutes. She'll be in uh, 10, 15. So, you know.
Different. If it's Coos Bar and Lounge, bartender, bottle my order. Duce and Waterbury, both nicknamed Dirty Water. Home of the best ballers like Ben Gordon, Tarazi. You can get body, fast as a Ghibli, Maserati. They shoot on them back blocks, work it, move in a trash spot. A-body hustle, knowing you have or you have not. We them rappers, gatekeepers won't open the padlocks. All these carrots chain husky like the Yukon mascot. So the God tell them I was... Born in Connecticut, all hitting New Britain. Born in Connecticut, and Sonya, where the fuck you at? Born in Connecticut, man, and is you in this? Born in Connecticut, Red Stowe, is you fucking with me? Born in Connecticut, high 93.7. Born in Connecticut, New London, where my head is at? Born in Connecticut, this is where the hustle's turn, but I'm getting busy again. 
<laughs> oh, welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk on Babs Rolls Ivy. Thank you for tuning in to 103.5 WNHH. And of course, you know we're live streaming across all the social media sites, Facebook, X, uh, YouTube, <laughs> Twitch. Uh, so tune in at all the spots on WNHH, New Haven Independent, and uh, Love Babs Love Talk. Hey! I am delighted to welcome Katrina Jackson, author. Uh, by day, she's Dr. Nicole M. Jackson at Bowling Green uh, State University, uh, associate professor. And by night, she is the fabulously talented author, Katrina Jackson. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. I am so delighted to meet you. I know you're coming to Lit Fest, and uh, it's all about romance this year. So I'm excited to hear what brought you to this genre of books. Um, mostly depression. <laughs> okay, we all have our reasons. Do tell. <laughs> um, I mean, I I started reading romance like actively, like in the midst of like a heavy election season, where I just felt as if like the world was rough, <clears throat> and I needed mm. like a shot of hope. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, um, and I just happened to find like authors who clicked with me. Like I've always loved to read, but like romance was not my like genre of choice. And so I ended up here when I just needed like a lot of happiness. I like that. And so did you find it easy to start writing romance? Like what was the, what, what, if you wanted to tell a romance story, where did you start? Did you just say, I'm a draw for my own life. Am I just going to make everything up? Like, how did you get started? Um, I mean, so I got started um, writing romance um, in a different, a slightly different time period, but still depression. Um, and I just, I think that what I wanted was in those early stories to think about um, something that felt totally new. Um And as I've written over the years, I've started writing more from my own experience, from the life I live. Like I write a lot about academics and academia. um, And I write a lot about the things that I love, like history and and like black music. So um, I think I sort of evened out over time with sort of thinking about, um, you know, like Toni Morrison said, like there were stories I wanted to read. So I wrote them. And 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 you write with a bit of erotica. Not a bit, a lot. A lot. <laughs> and and so uh, how do you how do you how do you work that in? Because, you know, uh, for black women, anything sexual, we are we are only in two categories as, as according to the world. We either whores or Madonnas. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like we either yeah. long suffering mammies or or loose women. How, yeah. do, we, how do you balance out a, a, a truth? You know, how do you carve out a, a different a different a different perspective? Um, I think I just reject reject that binary, right? Like, um, you know, I, when I was younger, I, I read Zane, like a lot of people in my mm-hmm. age group. I love Zane. Um, and um, I read her certainly too young, but I read her young <laughs> enough to, to rethink that sort of binary later on in my life to really sort of um, question if I had, if it had to be either or, right? And so when I started writing erotica and I started writing erotic romance, um, I just reject the possibility that like black women have to be either or that because they are sexually open or because they are questioning their own sexuality or because they are just sexual, right? That that somehow makes them less than or it makes them 
um, um, bad. Mm. And so uh, do you find yourself trying to explain uh, uh, Black women's freedom and agency around their sexual uh, uh, habits or desires or any of that? Um, I mean, I literally do explain it. In, like I teach about like Black women's sexuality and history. And a lot of my like literal teaching is about how that binary is a stereotype, right? Like we can look back in history and see that there are queer Black women who exist, that there are queer Black people who exist, that there are people who are having children out of wedlock, right? Like, like this idea that um, those stereotypes have to conform to reality are, are just not true. Um, and so that's the explanation that I do in my, my job as a professor. And so in my job as a writer, I just don't have to. Mm. I, so I will say that I won't. So in your it, it, as a professor and and a writer, do do these worlds collide? Are they easy to manage? Do they do they blend into each other? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think they're starting to collide a little bit more. Like this <laughs> this uh, sort of lit fest in the conference at Yale is maybe the more the most they have connected. Um, but I think they do also meet in my own writing, right? Like I am writing about things that are informed, often that are informed by my own research, my own um, reading on Black history. So. Oh, I like that. So, so, so I, I just come to understand recently that somebody had said that romance writers aren't taken seriously, that romance as a genre is not taken seriously as a, as other uh, fiction and and you know highfalutin sort of work. Uh, what do you say to that? Um, I mean, I think that there have been moments in literary history where that has been true. Certainly, um, I, I don't know that that's really true today. Is is my big sort of pushback. I do think though that like certainly in the eighties and nineties, there was a lot of um, um, discussion about romance, whether or not it was even literature whether or not it was just, you know, sort of, excuse my language, like porn for like housewives, right? Um, but I think today um, it's a different playing field. Like there are lots of like really fantastic um, uh, romance authors who are writing in other genres. There's a, a lot of sort of conversation about the literary merits of romance. Um, and I think that landscape has shifted in the past, like, you know, maybe decade or so. Mm. And so who who reads you? Like, who, what is your readership? And and when you start to write a book, uh, Katrina, do, do you have that audience in mind? Um, I'll answer the second first, which is no. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I, I am my primary audience. Like, I, I'm writing books that I, I want to read. Um, I'm telling stories I want to tell. Um, and I think my audience is um, pretty varied, actually, surprisingly. Um, I write a lot of queer characters, so I have like a very large queer audience, which makes me really happy. Um, I write a lot of academics, and so I have a lot of academics who read <laughs> my books, um, for better or worse. <laughs> um, and um, um, I have a lot of Black female like readers, of course, like I'm writing for myself, I'm writing Black female characters. Um, but I also have like a lot of male readers and non-binary non readers as well. Like it's just a really large cro cross section of people that I've had the pleasure of meeting. They email me about parts of the book that resonate with them. Um, so um, I, don't, I, I don't 
I, I do when I don't know who my audience is. And so it would be impossible for me to write a story for all of them. So I write for myself. And at least so far that has that has worked. And 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 I gather that you are committed to having diverse characters. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Like what does that mean? Uh, for me, it means that there's always at least one uh, Black American character in all of my books. Like I'm writing from, in that case, my own standpoint. Um, but I always say that I write uh, books that sort of filter or that look like the world I grew up in. I'm from like Northern California. So there are a whole bunch of Latinos, in particular Mexican Americans in my books. There's um, a, I'm a diaspora historian, so there are lots of Black people from the diaspora in my books, like from Africa, from the Caribbean, from Latin America. Um, so far, um, there are lots of queer characters in my books as the main characters and as secondary characters, because that's the world I I, I am in and that I recognize as my reality. Um, and there are lots of people ac across the class spectrum, too. Like, I'm not someone, I mean, this is, everyone is different, but I'm not someone who's particularly invested in telling stories of rich people. Um, I don't know what that's like. That's not my life. So I, I don't want to, that's, that's a fantasy I'm not trying to live necessarily. Um, and then um, a thing I also do, which is really important to me, is I write a lot of sex workers. Like, I have known a lot of sex workers. Um, I believe that sex work is work. And so I want to write those characters with dignity. So where's the romance? Because that sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot when you're talking about sex workers, when you're talking about the queer community. And, and I don't think anybody ever thinks about those folks having uh, uh, romance and, 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 then, and then you don't throw any, any money. Like what? <laughs> I didn't this say no money. I just said I'm not writing rich people. Like okay. most of us are living like middle class or less, right? Like when we are still out here living and loving, right? Like that's money is not a is not a, a prerequisite for love. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think it's only a lot if you think that those people are a lot, right? Like if you think that those people are exceptional. So um, you know, one of my favorite stories is literally. It's called like Back in the Day, which is a book two of a uh, of a series, and I'm writing. Uh, or the story is about um, a young man who's helping his father um, move out of their house in Oakland, California, which is my hometown. And in the process of moving out, his father is really adamant that he has to go with his record collection. And his son is like, Sam, this is a very large collection. Why do we have to do this? And in the process of explaining that, he tells his son how he met his mother 40 years before. Like this is and that's like a, for me, like a really obvious like entry point to tell this like love story that spans decades that, but that's also about like gentrification in Oakland. That's also about like what it looks like to uh, love someone. Um, um, these, these are two artists, uh, a writer and a photographer, like all of that can be bound up in one, right? Or I have a spy series um, that <laughs> begins with a, um, uh, um, uh, a personal assistant who hates her job because she's in love with her bosses. And so she's trying to quit. And like her best friend is a cam girl, like who falls in love with the spy. Like if you create a world where none of these people are, um, are tokens, right? Like they exist in this space, right? Because we all have friends who like maybe have jobs we wouldn't do or like are maybe struggling, right? Or we've struggled at different parts of our lives. Like, if we understand that, like, this is what the world and what friend groups look like, then it, it's not, it's not too much for me. Hmm. Okay. So 
you're, you're writing these wonderful books all across different genres with uh, erotica and romance and all of that. Uh, has anybody optioned any books? Can you see some of your characters on the screen, big screen, little screen? Can you see that? Do you wish for that? Um, I mean, I wish for anything. Um, so yeah, I will take I will take all opportunities. No one has optioned any books from me, but if you have a friend, like let them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can actually see them as um, like in my head. Like a lot of like the work I do and sort of thinking about the story is about playing it out in my head. And so when I sit down to write, like I do have like something like sort of happen, like a sort of real going in my head. But yeah, yeah if someone would like to option any of my books, I'm here. Because I see a lot of, uh, you know, these streaming services need content and people are doing some amazing stuff with putting a short series series out and uh, movies out on, you know, Netflix and Apple and all these places. Not your traditional make a film a year, two years, and then it goes to like movie theaters and people people are doing work and putting it on on these streaming services and it's yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, that is happening. Um, and I wish there was more of that. I especially wish there was more of that that didn't look exactly like everything else that's out there. Like, and yeah. I would not be me if I didn't say that, right? Like we have seen a lot of optioning of like diverse romances written by um, authors of color, but at least thus far, uh, none of them have made it to screen. So, mm. and that's a shame. Mm-hmm. So when you when you sit down to to craft something, where does inspiration come from, Katrina? Are you are you walking down the street on your way to the farmer's market? Are you are you at a party? Are you coming out of a relationship? How do you how do you get inspired to write anything and everything? Literally any anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> like do you carry a notebook around? Like how do you keep keep up? How do you keep up with the thoughts and the ideas? Oh, I wish I carried a notebook. That would make my life easier. <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, so I've gotten like um, uh, one of my most popular books called Office Hours. I literally started writing while I was on the tenure track and it's about a character who's on the tenure track. So I wrote it slowly over the course of like two or three years while I was literally going up for tenure. Um, and it was literally me looking around and being like, oh, this job is rough. And like everyone has it rough, right? Now, how you craft that into a romance, like, you know, we got there eventually, but like, that was my inspiration. Um, but then it's as simple as like, sometimes it's like, you know, song lyrics, sometimes it's, um, you know, reading someone else's book and wondering if I could like put my own spin on that as well. Like I, literally anywhere. Mm. Now, did, did I read a piece or did I, was this on your website about struggle love? Was that, oh yeah. Was, talk to me about that. Cause I, I'm such an, I, I, I don't understand this whole idea of a struggle love and how people are so invested in what I imagine struggle love to be. So tell me, tell, give me a definition of struggle love and, and, and why did you speak on it? So I, so the definition that is floating around social media and has been for a few years is essentially a number of readers um, saying that they don't want to read black romance because they or urban romance or urban fiction because they imagine that it's struggle love. And their definition seems to be that it is chaotic and um, toxic um, and like a dead end is the general description that people have used. Um, 
And in my opinion, um, which is what that piece is about, is that that's incredibly biased. Because if you were to hop on TikTok today, you'd see a lot of people telling you to read the latest dark romance, which usually begins with um, the male main character, the quote unquote hero, um, kidnapping his love interest and sort of spending a bit of time like torturing her in various ways as on their road to their happily ever after, right? Um, but the distinction there is that those characters are not um, uh, people, they're not Black, right? Or at least they're not both Black. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the ways that like romance has not changed in the last few years, because it's the thing I'm interested in as a scholar, is that it's marginalization of Black authors telling Black stories, right? Um, interracial romance has always been a, a pretty, pretty popular uh, subgenre, and it is absolutely one today. But Black authors writing Black romance where everyone involved in the romance is Black has uh, remained really marginalized in um, in this space. Wow. So where do you see the future of this going? I mean, do you think about, are you, do you feel like you're helping move the needle forward? And, 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 and who are you reading these days? Um, I would like to think I'm helping move the needle forward, but I also recognize, thankfully, that there are so many other people out there who are also doing that. Um, I'm a huge fan of Beverly Jenkins, who writes historical Black romance. I just think that, like, her stories are not just sort of, like, really sort of lovely to read and kind of fall into, but also as a historian, I think those uh, those uh, novels are um, so well crafted from a historical standpoint. Like if you're interested in Black history, like you can learn Black history on the in the pages of her books, which is super rare. Um, so I'm a huge fan of her. I'm a huge fan of Alyssa Cole. Actually, I found Beverly Jenkins through Alyssa Cole. Like that was a recommendation um, she made of an author she read. I think Alyssa Cole, right, she's writing thrillers right now, but her romances are some of the most um, progressive and clear and just like beautifully written books I've ever read in any genre. Um, and I love like Rebecca Weatherspoon, my friend Tasha L. Harrison writes really good ones. I mean, there are just lots of like authors who write really fantastic books who I think are pushing the needle forward in lots of really cool ways. Mm. And so how often are you writing books? How often are you putting books out? Less now. The pandemic has been rough on me. So. <laughs> And why? Why has the pandemic been rough? Because you, you know, you're held up somewhere. That seems like that would be the perfect time to, to like dive into writing. Well, I mean, one I teach, so I, I do have like oh, a so you have to that is, <laughs> even is demanding. Um, and so, and there's that, and like teaching, like I mean, lots of you know teachers and professors will tell you that teaching during the pandemic was you know a rough thing to do. So I think we're all kind of recovering from that. But I also think. Um, like lots of people, like um, the last few years have taken a particular toll on me, like mentally and also physically. And so right now I'm writing much less than I used to just because I'm trying to focus on like actually resting, like actually mm. like, taking time to like live my life, which is where I get inspiration for books and to like reconnect with people or connect with people who I love. So um, right now, like I'm not writing really much at all. Um, and, but I'm still teaching, so, you know. Well, you got to eat, right? You got to eat, you know, right? I'm still teaching. I mean, I know you're selling books, too, but, you know, you, you have yeah. to figure out what's the bigger, you know, because you, you're on. Are you tenured track? Are you tenured? I'm tenured now. Okay. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. 
And and I think you talk a little bit about that because you took a Sabbath or you were taking a Sabbath or you're about to take a Sabbath. I took a sabbatical. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, a sabbatical. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm but in no, my religious mind. <laughs> and how was that? Was that... Um, I don't think it was everything you thought it was going to be, at least from not. what I could read. It was not. It was not. Um, no, I, so my sabbatical started in the fall of 2019. So uh, the latter half of it was the start of the pandemic, which is a very sort of interesting transition to rest, um, but not quite. Um, but I think that um, so much of like that, like academia itself and like being a professor, which I write about a lot in my book is that um, like, I didn't really know what to expect. Like, I didn't come from a family where I was the first person in my family to get uh, a college degree. Um, I stumbled into graduate school and being a professor. And so I write a lot about what it's like to be um, a girl from a working class family who had like no precedent for this, right? And who is looking at a system that existed long before me and will exist long after me. Um, and wanting to do good work there, but also seeing how easy it is for me to do, to burn myself out. Mm. And so when you write about those kinds of things, is it cathartic? Sometimes, yeah. And do you get to work out some of the the issues or the kinks in your life through the fictionalized telling of a story? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, depending on when I'm writing the book and like how, um, my last book in the series about academics called Curriculum Vitae is literally called Sabbatical. And so I was thinking about <laughs> what was my sabbatical not for me? <laughs> um, but I was also thinking about, like, I think a lot of academics go into their sabbatical thinking about all the work they can get done, which makes total sense. You have new projects, you have new things you want to do, which makes, you know, it's fine. But it should also be a moment to rest, right? Like you have, you get a sabbatical, you know, depending on where you are every seven years, right? So that is a semester or one year where you don't have to teach. And so it's it should be a space for your brain to rest from all of the responsibilities you have, right? Most people though don't approach, pro approach it that way. I didn't approach it that way. And so this, that book was about me thinking, oh, what if I had, right? Like, what if I had prioritized like resting? And what if I had... <laughs> someone in my life who had been there to help me prioritize resting. Well, you know, resting is a movement now. There's it a is. whole, and it's, it's so revolutionary, I think, because no one ever tells black women to, to sit down. Literally ever, <laughs> right? They're like, oh, you have all these things on your plate. How can I give you a couple more? Right? Like, exactly. Yes. So I'm so I'm fascinated by by the nap culture and the rest ministry and, and all those opportunities mm -hmm. for black women to go sit down and, uh, you know, and, and be OK and not feel guilty and yeah. say no yeah. <laughs> to say Which no. It's like so hard for black women, regardless of their industry, regardless of their age, like the amount of times I just watch black women across the spectrum who are like, oh, I have like me, I look at myself, I have all these things on my plate, I'm doing all these things. And it's like, okay, but how was your sleep last night? Like, did you get a full eight? Did you get six even? Like, like what's, what's going on here? Oh my gosh. And I think the big thing too, like we have learned over the last few decades is like th that has like severe health like uh, effects, right? Like it is adverse to our health that we don't rest, right? And 
So I am thinking about that as I'm writing about all these characters who need to learn how to slow down, right? It's like, it's not explicitly stated in the in the books, but like, it's because I understand if they don't do so now, right? Mm. 20 years, like that will cost them in ways that they cannot get back. Mm. Now, now, do your friends and family members and significant others and love interests, do, do they concern themselves with showing up in your stories? But do they say to you, Katrina, listen, <laughs> I don't I don't want to show up in this book. <laughs> and, um, and do you and do you hear it? And do you do you acquiesce to it? Do you what do you do? How do you do that? I've never had someone say that to me. So I guess maybe they don't care. <laughs> Maybe they're flattered, right? I don't maybe. I mean, I don't write about anyone specifically, but I do take like little bits and pieces of like, you know, not conversations, but like things my friends are interested in, right? Like that shows up in my own life. And so of course it shows up in some way, like in my writing as well. And and none of your friends are like, girl, I, I, I recognize that, or I remember that, or I know what that is. No one says that. No one said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should ask. I send out a survey. Recognize yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, when you're, when you're out in the world, do you lead with telling people you're a writer? No. I don't. Why? I think, well, I think it's because, well, some of it is because so much of my identity has been about being a historian. Like that is what mm -hmm. I try to do. That's what my degree is in. For the most part, like when I meet people in person, like I'm probably meeting them in some way, you know, uh, connected to. And, well, first of all, I'm meeting them under my like actual name. So it would be very strange to be like, <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> um, but I also think that like being a romance writer is um, like it started off as a hobby. Like it wasn't a thing I stumbled into. Again, I mean, this is actually the sort of story of my life I stumbled into this as a career this was not the goal so, and so so you have a student you have this name Katrina but your name name your government name as we say is uh Nicole mm -hmm. so how did Katrina how did you pick Katrina why did you pick Katrina well, you could have picked anything I would imagine yeah um, well, one, I'm not that imaginative. Names are actually quite hard. Talk to any author. They will tell you that naming characters is very difficult. So naming myself was very difficult. Um, but actually, um, I chose Katrina because I had a cat who, uh, right around the time I was finishing my first book, was sick. And it was very clear that she was not going to last much longer. And so I just chose her name as my author name. That's a sweet story. It is. It's That's sad, a very it's sweet, sweet. It's sad, but it's a sweet. I mean, it just means at least when you tell it, I hear that you had great love for this cat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that it keeps her, it keeps the cat forever in your consciousness when you take the cat's name as your name. Yeah. Uh, in this genre, so so what do your colleagues think? What do you what do your work colleagues think? Um, nothing. I don't. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, one of one of my colleagues knows that I I write fiction. Like none of them have ever read my book. This is not their cup of tea, which it does not have to be. Um, I have like some colleagues who are not at my university who know that I write, um, who are very like supportive. But um, I think I think people thought I certainly thought that this would be disruptive. That it would be strange that like I. 
um, am a professor who writes, but like so many romance authors like are professionals. They are professors, they are lawyers, they are doctors. They are, I mean, it is surprising how many people in this genre are also in their alter ego or in their real lives. Uh, people you would not expect. Mm. So, Katrina, are there are there black men romance writers out there? Yes. Who? So, my friend. Do you know any? I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do. There are some, not a whole bunch, but there are some, and I wish there are more. I mean, my personal friends. Um, are Chris Stevenson and Jason uh, Graham. And then there's also like Costco Jackson, who's a queer black man who writes like there are a few, hopefully there will be more in the future, but um, yeah. Hmm. I just find it interesting that I, I don't hear much about black men. No. Um, uh, uh, romance writers, except I do know the ones that write from a very uh, same sex space. Yeah. You know. there, there are a number of queer Black men. Um, there could always be more. But there are also straight Black men. Um, I think most of the ones I know are also indie. So they are self-publishing their own books. But yeah, they exist. Mm -hmm. All right. So so what what is the dream, Katrina? What what You know, we have a few minutes left. What is the dream as an author, as a professor for your life? What is the big dream? Like when you wake up or when you think about forward, what, what do you see? What do you want? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> you, you saved the hardest for last. Got that? Okay. Um, I mean, I think I think that my dream in writing is also my dream in teaching is also my dream um, elsewhere is to really sort of end up at a more just world. Like that is the like fantasy I'm still taking through my romances. Like how can I like contribute to like us ending up at a more just world where people are allowed to be. Um, uh, themselves where they are discriminated against where they are allowed to like make room uh, and space to care for one another like that is where I would like to end up um, and some days it is easier to imagine that world than others I like that well I so appreciate your time it was a pleasure talking to you I look forward to seeing you at Elm City Live Fest uh, in collaboration with the uh, Yale uh, the Literature of Hope uh, uh, romance fiction conference. I look forward to meeting you, and and I'm gonna pick up some of your books and see what's happening. Okay. And I'm an old lady, so I don't know. I you know I try to, I try to, uh, I try to broaden my horizons as best I can. But uh, okay, well I mean, you know. Know, if you want a recommendation to ease you in, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, give me one, girl. Let me write it down. <laughs> Tell um, me which one I should start with. I would start with either back in the day or office hours. Okay. All right. I'm writing that down. I'm going to go to my, my favorite bookseller and tell her, get me this book. Okay. Those are like mild. Okay. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for giving me a warning. <laughs> I'll ease into the, to the other stuff. I, I like it. So, but thank you so much. I look forward to you uh, uh, being in New Haven and uh, uh, spending some time in our city. And I look forward to talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank uh, you. Dr. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Have thank a good you. rest of your, your day. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, Harry Jones. Thank you so much. I'll be back tomorrow. And uh, I think all this week I'm talking to Elm City Lit Fest authors because it's all about romance. And uh, I'm sure I am going to pick up uh, Nicole, I mean, uh, 
yes, Katrina's books, because I'm intrigued now. So uh, thank you all for a wonderful Monday. It's a good time. So I'll be back tomorrow, Tuesday. Stay tuned. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh.